morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, June 22nd, we're studying Acts chapter 21, verses 17 to 36. Back in Jerusalem, Paul is not able to avoid the consequences of false information that has been spread about him. He is arrested and bound, just as the Holy Spirit had revealed beforehand. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor James Neuendorf. Pastor Neuendorf serves as a church-planting missionary in Puerto Rico through the LCMS Office of International Mission. Pastor Neuendorf, welcome to Sharper Iron. Hey, great. thanks for having me. Pastor Neuendorf, tell us a little bit about your work there in Puerto Rico. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so we've been in Puerto Rico now about three years. It's been an event, a very eventful three years. Uh, my wife is a deaconess, and uh, together we serve to plant a congregation in the city of Ponce, which is on the south coast of the island. Uh, the LCMS really kind of began ramping up the the mission work in Puerto Rico following the 2017 Hurricane Maria. Uh, there was a lot of disaster response work that that was needed and a lot of interest in the Lutheran Church in supporting that. And so we were kind of part of that second wave of missionaries who were, who were coming to help be a part of that response. Uh, and then about a year later, we had a earthquake, 6.4 earthquake, uh, focused on the south side of the island and, and, of course, had to be involved in a lot of the, the disaster response going on with that. And then, of course, the, just a few months later, I uh, had our, our joint uh, global pandemic. So it's been an, an, an eventful, exciting, kind of complicated uh, ministry to be serving in, but really exciting to see how the Lord is, is working uh, through his people. Uh, we have a great, great mission team, great fledgling congregation here, and the gospel is continuing to go out. So a uh, real privilege and honor to, to be a part of that. God be praised, and God continue to bless your work and the work of the saints there in Puerto Rico. It really is a joy to have you with us today, Pastor Neuendorf. You're now the, the third missionary in a row that we've had talking about the book of Acts, which is just very exciting and, and quite fitting. So we find Paul in Jerusalem this morning. As we do so, what context should we know, whether within the book of Acts or a larger historical context that will help us understand the text we're going to read today? Yeah, so uh, this is a really kind of an interesting uh, period of time in which the book of Acts is, is really starting to pick up. Um, you kind of have to imagine Paul returning home to Jerusalem to find out that all is not well in Denmark, as it were. Uh, he, he comes back to Jerusalem in what I like to describe as something similar to, let's say, the 1780s in France. Uh, we're at the point of total chaos and revolution. People are really riled up politically. Uh, there's a lot going on with the Roman government. There's terrorist attacks. There's been some small rebellions. And everybody's really worked up uh, about, about uh, Jewish nationalism or supporting the Herodians. 
And Paul kind of walks back into uh, the Jerusalem council room there with, with his brothers in faith to share the wonderful news of the Gentile mission in a time when news like that is maybe not so popular. Uh, so our whole, our whole reading today is going to be talking a lot about how they're trying to navigate that politically sensitive situation, uh, both inside and outside the church. So you mentioned it's it's similar to the 1780s in France. That would be prior to the French Revolution. And looking here at a, ver- a variety of timelines that are suggested, we're probably the mid-50s AD. So about 15 years before the fall of Jerusalem in, in the year 70. What What is that political situation? What's going on in the world around the church there in Jerusalem that influences the events we see today? Yeah, so, so bringing up the year 70 is... Of course, the the date that all of us have in mind because of the the destruction of the temple, uh, but actually it's it's in the year sixty six that the revolution itself, the Jewish revolt, starts. So we're even closer to the date of the um, of this revolt uh, than than seventy. Uh, we're possibly only nine years before the the Jewish revolt. Uh, there's been a lot of things going on at the time, so. Josephus writes a fair amount about the the kind of events leading up to the Jewish revolt. You'll remember Josephus is a Jewish historian who was actually a general uh, in the the armies of the Jewish revolt, although he claims that he was pro-Roman. He's writing this, of course, after the fact, uh, hoping to to calm things down with the Romans. Um, and, and he shares a, a whole lot of reasons for the upcoming revolt, especially uh, talking about the uh, the previous procurators, so Felix, and then later, uh, although this will be after our reading for today, Florius, um, are really kind of handling the the Jewish religion and religious rights uh, and the tax issues very poorly. Uh, we might say even Tacitus will go and say that a lot of the reasons for the Jewish revolt were not necessarily because of Judaism being so rebellious, but because of the poor governorship uh, that was happening. So uh, there's a couple of, of events that he gives. For example, there's an incident he writes down uh, in the, 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 the governor previous to Felix. This is a, a guy named Cuminus. Uh, he writes, the Jews, as if their whole country was in flames, assembled in frantic haste, religious fervor, drawing them together irresistibly. And he tells a story of a Roman soldier who finds himself a copy of the Jewish law in front of a crowd, rips it in half and throws it in the fire in front of everybody. And the whole population is really riled up about this. So people become really, um, really zealous is, is the word that the, that the scriptures use, right? About showing their love for the law and, and they see the Romans as hating it. Uh, at this, at the same time, we have this group rise up called the Sicarii. Uh, actually, in Spanish today, we we use the word a sicario for uh, like a like a mob assassin, like the cartels down in Mexico. Uh, and these these were terrorists, and uh, they would attack people in crowds. Um, you know, they'd pull out these knives, which were called the Sicarii. There was even a uh, an event prior probably to this story here in 
in acts where they break into the city records and burn down all of the tax records so that nobody can uh, can charge taxes, right? You don't know how much wow. we owed because we burned it down. Um, so there's there's just this high tension everywhere between Gentiles and Jews, uh, far beyond anything that we saw even in the Gospels. Obviously, we know in the Gospels with 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 Jesus, we were seeing some tension between Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans, uh, who are also Gentiles. Um, but at this point in time, I think it's really important that people understand. Uh, you can drop a match in Jerusalem, and you're going to have a fire, and that's what happens. <laughs> as we'll yeah. as we'll see. Right, right. I I find that very helpful because, you know, if, and again, going by the timeline that Dr. Steinman lays out in his book from Abraham to Paul, the the event that we're looking at today happens maybe five six years after the Jerusalem Council, back in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council, the church met and talked about these issues between Jews and Gentiles in the church. And they came to a, a peaceful resolution. They sent a letter out to the churches, letting them know this is what we decided according to the to the word of God. Mm-hmm. And here's how we're going to d- deal with this within the church. James is going to reference that in our text today. And it's it's kind of like, well, why, why do we need to talk about this again? Didn't we talk about that already? But I think, you know, laying out this political situation ex- helps us to understand why this is brought up upon Paul's arrival right there in Jerusalem. There's a a new situation. This this tenseness has been growing, and and the church is trying to navigate that situation. Yeah, I I think it's important, too, that we bring in uh, the material issue of the theological question of whether Gentiles, too, could, could believe and be saved, right? That was resolved, really, in the first 10 chapters of Acts. We were exploring that whole... That whole question, and, and as you mentioned, that's been resolved. Now we're dealing with the perceptions, uh, mm. something that I, the the council will discover is not as easy to manage as one <laughs> might hope. Uh, but the the question here is now going to be, well, okay, we understand that we're not justified by the law of Moses, and that these uh, customs or or traditions such as circumcision are unnecessary but it looks really bad and we've got a political problem here and we can't afford to have these tensions come in. All of us know kind of what that's about. Uh, we've been, we've been dealing with the kind of similar things in our own culture where the material issues are one thing and, and the perceptions are another. How are people going to interpret uh, whatever actions that we take? Well, let's go ahead and and take a look at the text and see what actions are taken, how the church tries to deal with this, and as as you said, how the match ends up getting thrown anyways and a fire begins. So we're in Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 17 today. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses, 
so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. That takes us through verse 26 of the text. I'll pause there. Pastor Neuendorf, the text begins, Luke is there with Paul, so we have come to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And they go to the brothers. James is the one who's in charge of the Jerusalem church. This is James, the brother of our Lord. We met him back in chapter 15. He was very prominent in the Jerusalem council. Uh, what happens in this inter in this initial interaction between Paul and the elders there in Jerusalem? Yeah, so it's interesting because we see one of the other themes in the book of Acts. Uh, we, we recently have been going through Acts with our congregation here in Ponce. And one of the things I've been emphasizing to them continually is this, this book is titled The Acts of the Apostles, uh, but Luke makes it very clear to us that this is the acts, the continuing acts of Jesus through the apostles uh, and through his church in the world as he continues, the risen, the, the risen Jesus continues uh, his ministry out into the nations. And, and we see exactly that happening right at the beginning, right? Uh, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Uh, what a beautiful sentence that is for for everyone in church work everyone in in uh involved in the mission of the church to remember every day it's it's what god is doing among these people through the ministry of those who he has called and sent and so uh, right at the beginning as they gather together in the council they're recognizing and rejoicing in god's work uh, among these people they glorified god when they heard it right they they see that this is not the work of Paul. This is not something that he has been doing on his own. Uh, this is God's work and God's desire to gather all nations to himself, as, as he's always promised, uh, even all the way back to Abraham and, and in the, the very first chapters of Genesis. Um, so, so they begin this meeting with rejoicing, right? We have this wonderful news of what God's been doing. And then we answer that wonderful news with uh, what have people been doing? Well, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, people have been telling rumors. Uh, people have been talking. People are worried about how this looks. What are we going to do about these rumors? I, I think it's interesting that, that they do not attack Paul on his theology, but rather express concern about the rumors that are being told. And it's interesting, too, that some of these rumors are actually true to a certain extent, uh, as we'll see in the epistles. Circumcision is not something that Paul is going around and promoting. Um, now, he's not saying to forsake Moses, but to some degree, uh, his his preaching about the, the Mosaic law is grounds for some of these rumors. So so you can tell that there's a there's a real issue here that they are hoping to resolve. And the solution that they come up with is essentially a PR stunt. 
uh, we're gonna we're gonna show them that actually you you do all of the traditional Jewish religion to the point of uh, the Nazarite vow uh, that he would be funding, which is actually kind of a little bit problematic um, because it involves uh, the the Nazarite vow besides shaving the head and, and a number of uh, abstaining from alcohol and wine and so forth. Uh, it also includes three sacrifices, a burnt offering, a sin offering, and I have it written down here. Burnt offering, sin offering, and a peace offering. Well, the book of Hebrews would have some things to say about those sacrifices and whether or not they mean anything uh, after Christ has been crucified. Uh, but this fascinating thing is that Paul goes along with it, right? This is a very expensive thing they're asking him to do, both from his own sense of, of theological rightness, I suppose, and financially, uh, this, we're talking about for four men, three, we've got a male lamb, a ewe, and a ram for each of these men, uh, plus whatever it takes for them to have their heads shaved and everything else. This is a very expensive thing. Uh, yeah. And they do it because of this tension and these rumors. They're trying to assuage these rumors. The the expense part of it is is fascinating because if if I remember correctly, Paul is bringing with him to Jerusalem an offering mm-hmm. that he's collected for the churches, and so then to add the the expense of this, I mean, he goes along with it, and, and we'll talk about that. But it is striking. The, I've never really thought about the expense that would have been involved and how that plays into the offering that he's bringing to support the church in Jerusalem. That uh, that's an that's an interesting thought with with these with these ones who are spreading these rumors about Paul. And as you said, there being some truth to what is said that he's, you know, he's not telling Gentiles to be circumcised. What, where is this, this argument coming from? And the, the way, I, what I mean by that is, you know, you talked about how the theology has been resolved in the book of Acts several times when it comes to the Gentiles. And, and in back in, in chapter 15, there was the, the party of the Judaizers that seemed to be behind the complaint there. Those who, who want to add circumcision as a requirement to be saved. Is it, and I'm not sure if the text is clear or not, but maybe, maybe you have a thought. Is it, is it a Judaizing tendency here or is it more of a, a weakness of faith? Where's this accusation against Paul coming from here? Yeah, so that's a great question. My, my view, certainly the Judaizers are probably involved in this to some degree, although it's, it's hard to tell when they become a formal party, uh, because it certainly seems like the Judaizers are not leaving from the, the council. They claim to have authority from the council, but, but they're not in the middle of this. Um, but the, the whole issue of this time period and, and its uniqueness compared to our, our own part of this uh, Pentecostal period that we're in, right? Uh, the pre-return of Christ post-Pentecost world, is that in this period of time, we still have the people, the land, and the temple, uh, which for the Jews, that's their entire religion, is those three things, right? Belonging to the people of Israel through circumcision and your, your, your bloodline, uh, which tribe you can trace yourself back to, uh, that you're part of the marked covenant, 
living in the land itself, having the land, even under occupation uh, from the Romans, it's still, this is the promised land that, that you've returned to from Assyria or Egypt or wherever you were before in the, in the great dispersal. And then the temple with all of its sacrifices. And, and it's hard for us to really wrap our heads around how radical it is to move on from those three things for, for Christians, to understand the implication of, of, of the fulfillment of Christ that the temple isn't needed anymore. And, and they understood that, it appears, theologically, but it's still right there, right? And your whole religion is, is built on belonging to this people and going to this temple and making these sacrifices, you know, keeping the Sabbath day in the synagogue, and, and, and it's, that's your religion. And now you understand Christ fulfilled all those things, the Messiah has come, but the, as, until the temple's gone, and until the land is gone and until your bloodline that goes back to the tribe of Dan or whatever, until that's gone, I think there's always this natural tendency to not want to let that go yet. Um, even after you've accepted intellectually, theologically, that all of those things have passed. So you you called it a PR stunt what they what they come up with which is you know I mean that's maybe a loaded term sure. is but but Paul Paul goes Paul goes along with it though and it, he doesn't seem like one to just go along with a PR stunt what I mean how how do we understand this decision and and especially Paul being willing to do it even with the great expense involved yeah so I, the reason I call it a PR stunt is it's meant to be seen um, it it is not. There are any number of things that he could have done privately to demonstrate his commitment to the to the traditional Jewish law. Uh, this is something that the word will get around because he's making this great expense. It's a public thing when people are taking the Nazarite vow. He's going to go down to the mikveh and do the purification. Uh, it's all very, very visible. So I, I think a lot of it is he goes along with it one because he's submitting to his authorities um and i, I as we see later in uh, like first corinthians 920 uh paul is happy to to be all things for all people to be a jew for the jews uh, the the purpose for him is the sake of the gospel and so if the church leadership thinks that this will help to calm people down that's that's okay for the sake of the gospel. He'll, he'll spend any amount of money. He's going to spend his life uh, for the sake of preaching Christ. And so if this will remove this problem, uh, then, then he'll do it. Now, it is, it is interesting to me that these sacrifices in particular, uh, I, don't, I don't have a good answer for it because that's, uh, that's something that would seem at the very least unnecessary, but potentially an undermining of the, the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. Uh, I'd love to talk to St. Paul about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand that, particularly being a little bit troubling, because we have, you know, we have seen him, we've seen him back in Acts chapter 16, before, when Timothy joined their company, Paul had Timothy circumcised. And of course, that was in the immediate aftermath of the Council of Jerusalem when maybe you would have expected Paul to 
stand up a little bit more forcefully against having Timothy circumcised, he's still very willing at that moment, for the sake of those to whom Timothy will preach the gospel, to have him circumcised. You know, he did, well, he, or or maybe it was Aquila, there was a little bit of a question on that in chapter 18. Mm-hmm. There was another time where a vow was fulfilled. It only mentioned the the cutting of the hair there. It didn't mention the sacrifices. But yeah, the the sacrifices, particularly given what what is written in the book of Hebrews, you know, the sacrifices are like, oh, I'm not sure about that, Paul, but, but he did it. And I, I think they're, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can say much more than that. I, th- I think it comes to the same the same area as the meat sacrifice to idols, yeah. uh, which is to say, can you eat meat sacrifice to an idol? Well, I mean, if you understand it properly, it's nothing. It's, it's just meat. The idol is nothing. Can you sacrifice a lamb in the temple to the Lord? Well, it's sacrificed to the Lord in the temple as was commanded, and you don't have a specific command from Christ, by the way, don't don't sacrifice anymore uh, in the temple. Uh, all of this becomes a moot point in 70 AD when even the Jews today can't, they couldn't sacrifice if they wanted to because they have to make those sacrifices according to the law, which means at the, at the temple and the place that the temple is, is meant to be. So it's, it's an interesting thing that this is not a theological issue that we ourselves potentially will ever have to answer. Um, right. And the early church seems to have let it, let it be without much comment uh, about whether or not you could continue to, to sacrifice a lamb in those years between the resurrection and uh, the destruction of the temple. And, and certainly here, Paul is paying for it. So hmm. yeah. It's yeah. A, and as you it's said it, it is. It is. But as you said, it does become a moot point then after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And then I, you know, again, for us today with the writing of the book of Hebrews and, and everything that we have, I mean, I, you know, we understand this isn't something that we do today and it's not really a, an issue. Paul does it here. And I think the way you put it in terms of first Corinthians nine is very helpful. He, he goes to be all things to all people, for the sake of the gospel, for the Jews and Gentiles alike who've come to believe in the Lord Jesus through the preaching of the word, he goes through with this under the guidance of the the church council there in Jerusalem. But we need to take our break before we pick up any more. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are studying Acts chapter one with Pastor James Neuendorf. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, June 22nd. We're studying Acts chapter 21, verses 17 to 36 with Pastor James Neuendorf. He is a church planting missionary in Puerto Rico through the LCMS Office of International Mission. 
Pastor Neuendorf, prior to the break, we were looking at Paul's return to Jerusalem, the recommendation from the elders there that he participate in this sacrifice and all of the matters of fulfilling the vow for these four men who are there in Jerusalem. It's part of an effort to navigate the difficult politics and tensions of the region of Judea at the time in the mid-50s AD, part of Paul wanting to be all things to all people so that people can continue to hear the gospel, continue to cling to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Paul's agreed to this plan, and he's begun the ritual. In verses 26 and 27, it says Paul takes the men, he purifies himself along with them, he goes to the temple, he gives notice, they're doing this publicly, as you said, the offerings presented for each one of them. And then the pe- the text picks up again in verse 27 with what happens, how is this actually received? So we read once again from the pen of St. Luke. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. That's the rest of our text for today. That takes us through Acts chapter 21, verse 36. So I think, Pastor Neuendorf, the image you used earlier was, here's the match that starts the fire. What what happens? The seven days are almost complete. It looks like things are going to go go well, and then everything goes awry. Tell, take us into what actually happens here. Yeah, so uh, we talked earlier about this powder keg. Uh, the last thing that you do when, when you have this Jews versus Gentiles debate, the worst thing that Paul could ever do would be to bring a Gentile into the holy place. That is uh, one of the only pieces of the temple that has has remained to this day archaeologically is the sign that said outside the temple, uh, if any Gentiles cross behind this point, then they'll be put to, the, to death immediately. Um, so the idea of this accusation is, is really absurd, right? If Paul is going through this, he's going through this careful process to publicly show Look, guys, I'm not here to cause problems with Jews and Gentiles. I'm a Jew. They accuse him of the craziest thing that they can think of. Uh, it's even it's ironic that he's going through his his days of purification. He's not doing the Nazarite vow. He paid for it. He's participating in in sponsoring these four men. He's going through purification because there's a tradition that when you've been outside of the land of Israel, when you've been out among the, the ethnoi, among the nations, you defile yourself by being away from Israel. And before you can enter the temple, you need seven days of purification 
mm. uh, ritual bathing and so forth in the mikveh. So he's even gone to the extent of washing the foreign nations off of his body so that he can go into the temple. Uh, and of course, they just completely ignore all of this. Uh, it's interesting that some of the Asian Asian Jews uh, who who had maybe seen him with Trophimus the Ephesian at some point in a marketplace or something recognized this this guy as a Gentile and cook up this whole scenario. Uh, and you can see how quickly everything gets out of out of control. One of the things that I love about the Book of Acts and Luke as a writer is just the the detail. Uh, and you can you can picture this scene. Everything is just blown up. Uh, if to use our our 1780s example, this is now you know the streets of Paris with Robespierre. Um, everybody's shouting. I love that they call for help. Uh, <laughs> right? yeah. Like he's <laughs> this murderer's here, and and he's causing this problem. Uh, mm. And and. If we remember how tense the situation is, we can also understand why there's such a major military response. So if we remember the Sicarios, uh, the Sicarii, sorry, I should speak Latin, not, not Spanish. Um, <laughs> the Sicarii who, who are terrorists going around knifing people in crowds and burning tax records and, and all these other things. Uh, the soldiers immediately respond. It's it's the Tribune's biggest problem that he could possibly have that something blows up in the temple and now th this could start the Jewish revolt of 66, nine years earlier. Uh, so they immediately respond, can't hear what's going on. They're just gonna, they're just gonna stop, stop the beating and drag him away. And, um, What's fascinating is, in so doing, and all of this confusion, all these people lying and and acting without knowing what's going on, they're fulfilling the prophecy of Agabus that we saw in uh, let's see, twenty one eleven, um, which is a little reminder by Luke, even though it's very subtle, he doesn't even call out the fulfillment of the prophecy. Um, that in all this chaos of people. The Lord is the one who is in control. Um, we just had in our in our Bible study that we're doing here locally, uh, we just we just covered where Peter, where, where James is executed, James the brother of John, mm -hmm. and then Peter is put in prison, and how the actions of uh, of the angel to bring Peter out of the prison. One of the questions that we have to ask is, well, okay, if you're capable of doing that. Now, why did why did you allow James to be killed by Herod? Mm. And the reminder to the church is, James being killed by Herod was not something that happened against the Lord's will. the The Lord always could have done things differently. And if if the Lord is allowing someone to be imprisoned, that's in the Lord's control. Um, which is what we're seeing here in that little hint about the fact that he's bound with the two chains that this chaotic situation among people is met by the total calm and control of the Lord who has a plan far superior to the plan 
uh, of the PR move <laughs> of calming the, the relationship between the Gentiles and the Jews in the church um, mm. that will unfold over the rest of this book. Mm. Your, your mention of, of how the Lord still is at work here and, and God's will being done, even with everything else that is happening, and maybe it doesn't look like it all the time, it, it reminds me of, of the way Jesus speaks in the Gospels. And Luke, I think, highlights this. Uh, it's in all of the evangelists, but Luke, I think, especially highlights it. When Jesus speaks about his passion, he uses that word, you know, it is necessary. Yeah. And, and Luke will reiterate that multiple times. He'll use that same language. And I think you see something similar here in the life of the church and, and bringing up, you know, the example of, of what happens in chapter 12 with St. James, the brother of John, and then, and now here that, that we see that same will of the Lord at work for the good of his church, for the sake of the gospel. And, and part of, I think the reason I, I draw that parallel is because of the last words that we've got in our text for today, which are the words away with him, mm-hmm. which was not first shouted about Paul, but was shouted about Jesus. And so you, you start to see how the, and we've seen this before, but yet again, the life of, of the apostles and the church mirrors the life of the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that's one of the key points here is you can't, you can't avoid persecution, right? Uh, and I, I don't blame the the apostolic council for for trying to come up with a peaceful resolution for this. That's of course they're using their reason and their and their wisdom uh, to try to to find a solution. But in the end, it, Paul does everything right in the eyes of any honest Jew. But they lie about him, right? Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. And yet, when it came time for the trial, he didn't get a trial in which they carefully considered the works of Christ uh, against, you know, against the law. They just lied about him and then crucified him. And now here, um, he did the purification. He did everything that a Jew ought to do, and still the result was the same. And, and I'm reminded of the words of Jesus, right, that a— a servant is not greater than than the master. If they call the master Beelzebub, what are they going to call you? Uh, and it's that reminder that you you can't escape the persecution that that might be coming against the church by simply uh, appeasing the, the offended parties per se. Um, it's going to happen, but when it happens, just as it happened with Christ don't forget who's the Lord, right? <laughs> Just because you couldn't find a solution doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't have everything uh, in his hands. And and it's humbling to realize that, that, yeah, you could do everything right and still, uh, still find yourself in this situation. The Jews and the Gentiles are going to hate each other. Uh, unless it's through the gospel, unless it's through Christ, there's not there's not any other way. Yeah, you you said you know you could do everything right, and and I'm I'm curious with with this text, and it is a you know, it's a narrative. It tells us what happened. There's not a ton of like Saint Luke giving side commentary and and saying this was according to the the will of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we we have the prophecy of Agabus, of course, yeah. but there's there's not any of that you know, like this is the way we should understand this as a positive or a negative example. Sure. 
and and perhaps this is a bit of Monday morning quarterbacking and isn't entirely fair. I'm not sure, but was was their plan the right thing to do, or maybe is that even just kind of beside the point? What what do you think? Yeah. Uh, so it's really really dangerous for me to say <laughs> if I were an apostle, <laughs> right? Um, so so without even getting close to that, I, I think it. You would think that the easier solution, or that the that the better solution, would have been to teach the the Jewish Christians um, why the Mosaic Law and the the ceremonial law, why why circumcision was no longer necessary, right? Mm. I I think that's where when we start to when we start to put ourselves in their shoes, this is where that that point about the the context comes up. Uh, a lot of these decisions are a lot easier to make when we're not in the middle of a a literal revolution that's happening around us. I, I think a lot of us can understand, uh, pastors in the last couple of years, there have been a lot of really tough decisions to make in which they're lose-lose decisions in a lot of ways. And you're, you're trying to navigate them in a way that always is faithful to the gospel and and our confessions, but also is not going to unnecessarily throw sand in people's eyes, um, whatever your views about anything that's going on right now. And you're going to make mistakes, a lot of mistakes. And I think it's fair for us to say that there was probably a better, a better solution that could have been tried, um, than than this plan with paying the Nazarite vows, et cetera. But none of it actually matters because all that had to happen here is people saw Paul lied about him and started a riot, right? So what? I mean, maybe the solution was Paul should go away. <laughs> But but in the end, the, like I said, the persecution comes, right? The, the cross is there for us. And we can't, we can't just dance around it. Sometimes we, we might, you know, make a decision and the Lord blesses it and allows it to go one way or another. But I think in this situation, really, what, as we examine the events as they happened, um, it's just a mess. It's just a mess. Yeah. And that's how the church often is operating. And it, it's something I admire about Paul here. It, if I know Paul from the epistles, I have to assume he thinks this whole thing is absurd. Right? But we don't see any belligerence from him. He's not disrespectful to James. He doesn't say to the council, guys, what? <laughs> he yeah, he just yeah. does it because the gospel is first and these are his these are this is the council and he's going to submit to the consensus of the church and to their authority even though he has authority too he's he's yeah. tremendously humble uh in this entire story well and i th- i think that the reason paul can do that is be- is precisely because of what you were saying earlier that he knows that this is the lord's work yeah to grow the church, that he will be the one to, to do the work 
regardless of which decision gets made here by this, you know, this group in Acts 21. And I think it is it's probably important to reiterate again that the decision that is made here is not about the theology, but about the best way to, you know, navigate. And and they could have arrived at a different decision. They didn't, but they could have. I, I'm somewhat reminded of the of the account back in I think it was Acts 15, Acts 16, where Paul and Barnabas end up splitting ways. Mm-hmm. And, and we talked about how, you know, there was a disagreement between them, but it wasn't theological in nature. It was about whether or not it was wise to take Mark along or not. Yeah. And and however that disagreement went, what ended up happening was that the Lord worked through it to send the gospel in two directions. Paul and Silas went one way and and Mark and Barnabas went the other and the gospel went both ways and the Lord was at work either way. They could have arrived at a different decision. They didn't and the Lord worked through it. And and maybe something similar can be said here that, yeah, they they could have tried other things. They didn't. Paul went along with it. And, and, you know, he, he knew what the spirit had said ahead of time and, and had known that all along going to Jerusalem and did so unafraid and again, I think the reason is because he's got that confidence that he knows that this is the Lord who's at work, mm-hmm. allowing for the, you know, causing the gospel to go forth now into to new places and, and here in Jerusalem yet again. Yeah, this is also the the famously abused phrase by Luther, sin boldly. It, it, <laughs> yeah. It's actually referring to this. Uh, what? Take it, the, say more about that, Pastor Neundorf. What? Say say more about that the yeah. Luther's abused phrase. Yeah. So so the this whole concept of sin boldly is actually about decision making, being between difficult decisions. Uh, when you are looking at one decision and seeing sin there, and looking at another decision and seeing sin there, and saying, well, how how am I supposed to act if in both directions that I could choose and everything that I can see as a human being, I see human sin being a part of the complication there. What am I supposed to do? Uh, Maybe nothing, right? I'll just do nothing. And then you realize that that would involve sin as well. Um, and, And Luther says, well, sin boldly. Recognize that you're forgiven, and that the Lord knows that you live in a world full of sin. Every action that you take is going to be a human action. You are, you're broken, and, and you, you don't see with the perfect clarity of, 20, of, uh, of 2020 hindsight vision or of angels. Um, live in your grace, right? Don't go sin purposely. Uh, it doesn't mean sin purposely because you're you're forgiven, so it doesn't matter. It means when you have to choose between two things that are broken, remember that your Lord is the one that fixes things. Uh, he's called you into into service in this world. This is how the world is. So I think what we're looking at here is the council is basically sinning boldly. They're saying, oh, guys, we got to do something. We know that the Lord won't let it get out of control. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that both about Paul and the council, right? So that we, cause again, Paul doesn't disparage what happens with, with James and the elders. And so we shouldn't either that this is, they have that same faith as they propose this to Paul. But Pastor Neundorf, I'm, I'm curious with, with these takeaways that we're talking about, how do you, how do you see this applying to the church today? And in particular in your own situation in a, in a missionary context, why are these important for us to hold on to as the church still today? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the biggest takeaway for all of us as we consider other people in difficult 
uh, decision decision making points is to recognize that the Lord is the one who has done this work among the Gentiles through the ministry of Paul, that the Lord is the one who's done this work through the Jews in the ministry of this council. The Lord is the one who's doing the the wonderful work around the world in the mission field, uh, in every little congregation and large congregation within the, the, the Synod in the United States, all, all around the world. It's God's mission. And that doesn't mean it doesn't matter what we decide or, or how we act, but it does mean that our decisions on, on so many of these difficult issues are not in and of themselves going to break the Lord's church, which is a tremendous comfort. Yeah, that's right. uh, we, can, yeah. we can be heretics. That is absolutely true. But we're not going to break the one true church, right? That's in the Lord's hands. He might remove us. Uh, but he's not going to allow his church to be destroyed. And until he comes again, he will continue gathering all nations to himself. Uh, so we can relax a little bit about taking on that burden on our own shoulders. I can tell you as a missionary, every decision we make is very <laughs> frustrating and very difficult. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure that the Monday morning quarterbacks would come up with better solutions, probably truly better solutions than we would. Uh, if I have the hubris to uh, to accuse James here of, of <laughs> potentially making the wrong choice, I have to say the other James, me, is probably making a lot of, of bad decisions. But the Lord works through those. And I think an encouragement to everybody that that's in the church now in these really difficult times that we're in, difficult in terms of decision-making, if persecution's going to come, it's going to come. We're not going to be able to cleverly uh, work our way around it by, you know, wearing the right pin at the right time. Uh, they'll, they'll just lie about us, right? Just as they did with Paul. But if the persecution does come, don't forget who's, who's in charge of this church. It's not the broken people in the front. Right. And I mean, that that really ties back into that verse that you highlighted toward the beginning of this text, verse 19, where they they start this whole conversation by glorifying God for what he's done through Paul. And and also, you know, I mean, we kind of skipped over this, but it, I, I noticed that when when James begins to, to speak or the council begins to speak to Paul, they also bring up, look how many thousands of the Jews are also believing in Jesus, right? That, right. that this... You know, this work that's happening is happening among both Jews and Gentiles, and God's doing it all. And that that really is the confidence that they had in Acts 21 and that we still have today is that through us, how does Paul talk in, in 2 Corinthians 4? We've got this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure still shines through even when the, the jar of clay is, is broken. And I, I mean, I think you, well, we don't get to see it quite as much in our text today, but as it goes forward, it, you really are going to see how the Lord continues to work through what looks like a pretty messy situation. We left off with the words away with him. And we know what happened when Jesus heard those words shouted by a crowd. The Lord's going to use this situation now to allow Paul to proclaim the gospel ultimately all the way in Rome. That's that's moving pretty far ahead. Yeah, this but, but that's where we're the, headed. This basically bought him the boat ticket. That's right. That's right. So, Pastor Neundorf, we got about two minutes here. Help us to, to round things out for the morning. Yeah, there's one little 
little note that I have at the very end here too. You remember this whole thing that, that, that made the decision difficult was about the temple, right? It's all, what do we do with the temple? And, and we've got Jews and we still have this whole system. That's something that the Lord's going to take care of as well. And I'm going on a limb here. I don't actually, I didn't double check this. Is this the last time that we see the Jerusalem temple in the scriptures? Well, I'm going to have to pay attention now as I read the rest of the book of Acts for that one. I'm not positive. You might be right. I, I can't think of another time coming up that we come back to the temple. This might be our last appearance of the temple, which is in and of itself kind of interesting to see what seemed to them to be the ultimate tragedy, the destruction of the temple, the exile of the Jews from the Holy Land, just as happened with Stephen at the very beginning. The Lord is working not only through sending Paul to, to Rome through this arrest, but even in the destruction of Jerusalem, the Lord is working for the good of his church. And nobody could have imagined that. The council couldn't have imagined that. And, and for us also, the Lord might need to break some things that we can't imagine doing without. But if he does it, you know it's for a very good purpose. Pastor James Neuendorf is a church planting missionary in Puerto Rico, serving through the LCMS Office of International Mission, helping us today with Acts chapter 21, verses 17 to 36. Pastor Neuendorf, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 21, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.